Hello, my name is Dominique Drew, and this is The Art of Attraction, the premier podcast to elevate your relationships, your life, and yourself. I'm your host, Dominique Drew, an intuitive, a spiritual guide, and a seasoned expert in men's relationship coaching. I've used the methods in this podcast to completely transform my own life and relationships, and now, high performers in every industry hire me to help them do the same. Here, you will learn how to solve the issues in your inner world which keep you from real fulfillment, deep intimacy, freedom, and authenticity. Welcome to the next stage of your evolution. And we are live with The Art of Attraction with Dominique Giroux. Thank you so much for joining me. This is the space where we develop self-mastery. This is the place to master your inner game, to find out how it is that you are subconsciously creating or contributing to the things in your life that are not working and how to fix it. I have an incredible guest today. I'm so excited to share him with you. Um, Before I do that, uh, a little bit about just this program. If you're a regular listener, thank you so much for joining me again. Um, This platform is very much a place for, um, for teaching and for you know, just sort of presenting the work in a way that whatever resonates with you resonates with you. And that I think is probably going to come up, uh, you know, with my guests as well today. Um, It's about self-betterment, not in a shooting yourself type of way, but in a really looking uh, honestly at what is going on and taking responsibility for the, for all of it, the parts that you see that you're creating and the parts that you don't see that you're creating. Um, And through that, how literally just about every single problem in your life can be solved. So um, today, my guest is Danny Brassell. Uh, I'm so excited to speak with you today, Danny. Danny is an incredible um, is an incredible person. You know the the the, the things that you've done. Um, you know he's a speaker, he's a trainer, he's a coach. Um, he has spoken to over thousands and thousands of audiences worldwide. He's authored 16 books. Um, you know, all about leadership and motivation. And he's a co-founder of something called the readinghabit.com, which is literally the world's top reading engagement program. Um, so I'm really excited to talk about books. I'm a total uh, literature geek and uh, I'm really excited to have you on. Thank you so much for joining me, Danny. Thanks for having me, Dominique. And more importantly, thanks for all you do for everybody. It's really needed in the world. Thank you. Oh, I'm so glad. Honestly, it is the most fulfilling. I, I can't believe people pay me to do this work uh, <laughs> because it is that much fun. And I think that's probably means I'm in the right place. <laughs> mm-hmm. So so tell me, um, first I want, you know, I've got a little pet peeve here um, that I would love for you to, I'd love to get your take on. Why do people seem to not read anymore? Well, that's the entire philosophy of my program, Dominique. I mean, I, I was that kid. I grew up hating reading. My father is a librarian, and I, I always hated the public library growing up. It always had uncomfortable furniture. It smelled funny. There was always some elderly woman telling me to be quiet. Always like some freaky homeless guy who thinks he's a vampire hanging out in the library. And it wasn't until I actually started teaching in the inner city and I saw that a lot of my students didn't have the resources I had growing up where I really started to point the finger at myself. And I said, shame on me. You know, without realizing it, I was born with all sorts of advantages. Both of my parents were 
together. Uh, we weren't wealthy by any means, but we had food on the table and we ate dinner together as a family. Uh, we had plenty of books in our home. My parents read in front of us and to us. And mm-hmm. so uh, that became really important to me. And in, in you know, I've been in education now for over 25 years. And while I find that schools do an adequate job of teaching kids how to read, the question I always ask people is, what good is it teaching people how to read if they never want to read? Mm-hmm. I, I teach people why to read because I've never had to tell a kid, go watch TV. I've never had to tell a kid, go play a video game. And I, I should never have to tell a kid, go read a book. They should want to do it on their own. And it, it breaks my heart, Dominique, when I, I meet people that, that don't like reading. What that tells me is they weren't taught the right way. And yes. you give me that person for a couple of months, you give me anybody in your audience, I'll get them to love reading because if it can work for me and it can work for the thousands of people I've helped, uh, it can work for anybody. Hell yeah. I love that. That is so good. That is so good. I grew up, so I have a little bit of a different story. I actually was homeschooled for almost all of my life. Um, and, you know, sort of sprinkled in there. I took college classes when I was in, you know, probably, I don't know, 14 or 15. Um, because you go a lot faster, right? When you're homeschooled. Um, and I remember I read, do you know the Mac and Tab books? I do. Yeah, so that's how I learned to read. So it was like it was like wow. Mac is a cat, Tab is a rat, you know. And, and it's like that's how I remember. She I had these series seen those in years. That's funny yes. you said that. <laughs> so that was I remember being in the schoolroom with my mom, and she would and, and and learning like the Mac and Tabs, and then we would we would learn we would read Shakespeare together and like mm. act out the parts. I remember doing like Midsummer Night's Dream. And I think I was the lion because I'm like, I'm four years younger than my, my closest mm-hmm. sibling, four and six years older than I am. So lion. I was only a fairy in the midsummer. <laughs> hey, those fairies have some pretty complex things. The lion was not super complex. I think I was, <laughs> it was maybe a, how can we get Dominique to, uh, to um, uh, participate in this without her really being able to read from Shakespeare at that point. Um, but we were a huge reading family and my sister was reading the newspaper at three um, and we just like, that's just kind of what you did, but it was also, you know, the eighties, I'm, I'm 37 now. So this was like the, you know, late eighties, this was happening. And, um, and, and, and I don't know if it's more just, a the, the fact that there are just more addictive things out there, that sort of addiction of TV, of video games, of the internet, things like that. Um, and now that there, now we're in a situation where we need to kind of rely on our, um, uh, self-control, which obviously we're great at. Um, so I wonder if you're hitting upon an important point though, Tom, because that's one of the things I was with a a fourth grade teacher and, uh, she gave me one of her boys, Deshaun, and she's like, Deshaun can't read. Well, I worked with Deshaun for an hour. And in one hour, Dominique, Deshaun texted at least 10 of his friends. He sent several emails. He was surfing the net. I'm like, he's highly literate. Your mm-hmm. definition from a hundred years ago, you know, being able to read doesn't mean you have to read Little House on the Prairie. You know, right. I think I'm I'm an I would argue to almost anybody on the planet right now that kids are reading more now than they've ever read, but they're reading different types of formats. And right. uh, you know, you and I grew up with books being the major format. You know, today's kids whenever I have a technological problem, I ask a five-year-old to help me because yeah. it's amazing how these, there's a, a great YouTube video where it's this kid tapping a book, trying, waiting for something to happen. <laughs> you know, trying to zoom book. on the pictures. I can't even extend these pictures. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, not, it's not negative either. I mean, if you look at the history of the world, everybody always gripes about progress. I mean, the Greeks were arguing that writing was the death of 
of education. Oh, they, they can't remember it. They got to write it down. And so we're going down, down the weakness. Toilet. Yeah. It's always, it's always like well, they that. might've been right. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no. So I, I, I love that. I mean, gosh, I can't, can't believe you have the Mac and Tap book. I haven't seen those in years. Uh, and, uh, you know, for great. me, what I always like, there was a great, um, guy he's not a mister he's a doctor his name's dr seuss and uh you know as my little ones when i was teaching uh, my little ones i i used to call what they used to call him dr jesus and uh, <laughs> the reason he's a doctor not a mister is i think he taught most of the world how to read in english i mean look at all the things dr jesus does in his books i mean uh, first of all his books always rhyme you know yeah. which is great for anybody who's trying to learn how to read in English, especially if English isn't your first language. And, you know, oh. here in America now, we have a large population of students that English isn't their their uh, first language. And so Dr. Seuss is fantastic for that. Um, secondly, you know, his his books are always about something. I mean, I always mm-hmm. encourage adults to reread their favorite children's books. I mean, Dr. Seuss wrote the Lorax 50 years before anybody was paying attention to the environment. I mean, uh, maybe people in British Columbia might take uh, pay attention to why it's 125 degrees right now in British Columbia. Yeah, I mean, some things happening to the environment. and Probably just coincidence. Yeah, you know, denial ain't just a, a river in Egypt. Uh, <laughs> and, then, and then third, you know, and I can't believe more illustrators haven't picked up on this. Dr. Seuss was the first illustrator to make his characters purple and green and orange. And that was important because he wanted his books accessible to all kids, not just Bobby, Cindy, and Mary. Now, I've taught for many years. I've never taught a Bobby, a Cindy, nor a Mary. You know, I have taught Jose, Shaniqua, and Lee. And so mm. when I read aloud books, I'll change the names Bobby, Cindy, and Mitt. And oh, nice. I'll, you know, to, to Jose, Shaniqua, and Lee, because kids like to hear their names. I mean, yeah. One of my favorite books growing up was called Danny and the Dinosaur. (laughs) Somewhere in America, there's a little boy named Barack who's just so happy that uh, (laughs) there's President Obama. You know, so I mean, that's that's what that's my my superpower is finding what people like and making the books, you know, uh, accommodate that person. They like different things. You know, people, yeah. even your your listeners, you get, they got different. You you're, you do a great job with your podcast because you really serve a lot of different needs, and I, I appreciate that mm-hmm. because uh, you know not everybody's into this one little niche, but by by casting a wide net, you're able to to really help out everybody. I think. Yeah, yeah. Thank you, thank you for that. I, I appreciate it. Um, I think that that's that's cool about about the names. You're right. He does use names like that a lot. I support the changing of names, except for Cindy Lou Who. I feel like maybe that should, that's just like a, that's like in the educational canon. Like, mm-hmm. it's, it's yeah. just, that's just in there. Well, you're um, a book with a Domini. I mean, you have very nice, unique names, so. Funny story, my name came from a book. Oh, great. What, what book? Actually, uh, it's called The Great Impersonation. It's by E. Philip Oppenheim. And um, my grandmother is a, is a collector of uh, murder mysteries. She had over four and a half thousand uh, murder mysteries. My mother now has, <laughs> and it was one of them. It, I don't, is, there isn't quite a, a murder; it's a mystery story, though. Um, and and even in the story, it wasn't the first name; it was the last. His name was Sir Everard Dominey. Oh, cool. Um, and he was, um, you know, this whole sort of thing about like, is it is it him or is it not? It's like a, an identity type of, of of story. And his wife is Lady Dominey of Dominey Hall, which of course I thought had quite a ring to it. So I'm planning on making that happen. Um, and 
uh, and anyway, yeah, and I finally read the book, and thankfully, it's an excellent book. But she just she just read it, and uh, it it sort of stuck for her. Yeah, no, I love it. Uh, Bruce Willis and Demi Moore named their their daughter Scout. I was like, oh, they're readers. I, I, <laughs> nice. <laughs> I didn't know they had a Scout. That's yeah, great. Scout from To Kill a Mockingbird is one of my favorite characters ever in a book. So that was wonderful. I know, oddly, I never read that one. I'm not sure oh, how. Uh, yeah, I know. It's it's a, it's such a it's sort of a uh, a, a, a misfire on my part. I feel like I, I'm not sure how that never came across. Read, read that, um, Dominic. And, and I'll tell you why. There's no yeah. reason that when I was in ninth grade and forced to read that book, which anybody that forces me to do something, I, I, I'm a rebel. I don't want to do it. And I was shocked how much I loved that book. Mm. And and then it, they actually made a good movie version of it too. But it's just, uh, I mean, Atticus Finch is just a hero and scout. And uh, I mean, it's just a wonderfully written book. And uh, I, I would have loved to have met Harper Lee. It's just a beautiful book. That would have been incredible. He wrote a number of really great things, didn't he? What's that? He wrote, he wrote a number of no, great no. things, didn't he? Well, Harper Lee, it's a, it's a woman. She grew up, so oh, oh, it's a woman. this is kind of an interesting, so it was pretty much the only book she ever wrote. She had another oh. one that came out at either right before she passed away or right after she passed away. I didn't read it because it was kind of like a sequel to Kill a Mockingbird. And I'm like, no, You're like, no. I'm not going <laughs> to do that. I, I don't want to ruin this for me. And um, her, the, the character Dill in To Kill a Mockingbird, Harper Lee grew up in this small little town in, in Alabama. And her next door neighbor uh, was Truman Capote. Who Truman Capote became the author. He wrote In Cold Blood and Breakfast at Tiffany's. And, yes. and actually, there's a great Truman Capote story I read once where uh, uh, this, this Pulitzer Prize winning author, he was talking about when he was six years old, he wrote a, a story and he sent it to Truman Capote. And Truman Capote sent the story back to him with a note that said, Good story, poor spelling, send more. And, and for the next 20 years, this guy, anything he wrote, he sent to Truman Capote. And I mean, you know, years later, the guy wins the Pulitzer Prize. I'm like, that's, that's amazing. Story. <laughs> what a fascinating thing. I love it. I, I love, I mean, this is what gets me excited. Is I grew up listening to Paul Harvey on the radio and I love hearing these stories. Oh, you know, man, you see, I, I'm, I'm dating myself. I'm old enough. You know, you drop <laughs> off my head. You count the rings at this point. But uh, when I was growing up at 12, 15 every day, uh, Paul Harvey come on the radio. He's like, I'm Paul Harvey with the rest of the story. And he'd tell you this five minute story and you're trying to guess who it is he's talking about. And uh, I love storytellers like that. Where, yes. I'm, I'm, and that's what the books I write now are, are written in, in that kind of genre where it's like, oh, you're trying to figure out who is it or what what's the company he's talking about. Uh, and that's there's what, a, there's what a I mean, podcast does that. Yeah, I taught, I taught uh, you know, so I've spent most of my teaching career in South Central LA and Compton and Watts. And when I was teaching middle school, you know, I taught eighth grade special ed, which wasn't special ed. It was 16 boys that nobody else wanted to teach, eight African-American, eight Hispanic. And if they weren't miserable enough, they got stuck with the white dude as the teacher. And um, I was the first teacher in that school not to have a single tardy. And the reason I never had a tardy was I always began class reading like a a short story, like a Paul Harvey story or something. So they wanted to get there in time. Yeah, the guys are all sitting like, who is this? They're always trying to figure it out. And I, I loved it. I mean, that's what reading should be. It should just uh, make you curious and get you excited. 
I love that. I'm so glad that you shared that because that really well illustrated your superpower. (laughs) I feel like getting school kids to do anything or be excited and engaged in any way. Like I've always worked with adults. Plus I was homeschooled. So most of my childhood was around adults. And I went to junior, senior year of school and I couldn't believe the kids, how tuned out the kids were. I mean, I couldn't believe it. I was just like, well, like we're 14, like we're here. So why don't we just learn something? Like I get you not wanting to be here, but like you're, you are here. So like, why don't you just, and it, it just made no sense to me like the, the wasted life of, of sitting in something, which of course people do now in their jobs a whole lot. Mm. Um, you know, sitting there doing something you genuinely don't want to do. Yeah, I don't understand that. What a, what a prison sentence. It really, it really turns into purgatory immediately, right? Like just by not wanting, which I guess you could say is, is true for anything. If you were really unhappy about being here in the interview, you know, it's like, well, you can sit here and be unhappy about being in the interview or you can be like, okay, well, here I am. So I'm going to commit to the moment. Well, you know? I, I like that about, actually, I was going to say that earlier, Dominique is, you know, I like that you're present. Most people are either either 10 minutes ago or 10 minutes ahead of time, but they're present. I mean, we're here right now. We can help people right now. Let's let's enjoy this moment. Yes. Thank you so much for that reflection. I worked very hard to to achieve that. That was not my natural state. (laughs) I was anywhere, anywhere but here, anywhere but here. Uh Uh-huh. Um, and I, th- there was some, and I, I'm not gonna remember where it came from or what, even how it was said, but it was some, um, either channeled material or, or, uh, someone who was enlightened, someone who knew what, what they were talking about. Um, and they said, you know, that, that, um, any form of suffering can be solved by committing to the, to the moment by just deciding to be mm-hmm. here because then it takes away the resistance of, you know, being here and, um, and in so doing, uh, you, you then commit to the moment fully. And you're like, okay, well then here I am. And suddenly there's, there's nothing more to resist. Yeah. Yeah. When you were staying anywhere right here, it was reminding me of this great story. Have you read the, the Walter Isaacson biography on Steve Jobs? No, that sounds interesting. All right. So, well, Walter Isaacson is just one of my favorite authors. He's one a former uh, editor of Time Magazine. He's written all kinds. I mean, I've written, I've read everything in the guy's writes, but the Steve Jobs biography so when I'm reading, I'm always looking for one little anecdote. I mean, if a book gives me one anecdote, it was well worth my time. And, and believe me, there was more than one anecdote in the Steve Jobs biography. But the one that I, I've told this story now to at least a thousand audiences, and most people have never heard the story. And even when I tell it to you right now, I guarantee you I'm going to get goosebumps because this is a true story. So people don't realize that uh, Steve Jobs was uh, adopted as a child. Um, you know, his, um, his birth mother, she was a college student and she gave him up for adoption. And, Whoops. Well, it, it's interesting <laughs> because a lot of people don't realize that, uh, his birth father was a Syrian immigrant. And so when people love to, to gripe about immigration, I'm like, well, you get rid of Syrian immigrants. You just got rid of Apple computer, which is interesting. If you look at almost all of Silicon Valley, it's all based on immigration. So uh, yeah. I, I think people, uh, they oversimplify certain issues, but, um, when, when he was, when he was, uh, when Apple went public as a stock, he made like a hundred million dollars overnight and he decided he wanted to track down his birth his birth mother. And so he hired a private investigator, took the private investigator about a week and uh, investigators said, you know, she's in Los Angeles and he set it up so he'd have lunch with her. And uh, so they're having lunch and um, uh, 
his mom so apologetic. I'm so sorry I gave you away, Steve. And he said, no, no, my parents have been great. And so it's interesting because Steve Jobs could be a, a miserable human being in lots of respects. But one thing I respected him for was he always called his adoptive parents his, his real parents because they, mm. they, they raised him. Just magnificent people. Well, then all of a sudden, there's a Star Wars moment where his mother looks at him. She's like, Steve, there's something you need to know. You have a sister. Well, it turns out Steve Jobs' sister is Mona Simpson, who is the famous novelist. She wrote Anywhere But Here, which which you said earlier. Anywhere But Here uh, was a movie with Susan Sarandon and, uh, uh, oh gosh, the gal from... Um, Oh, I'm having a senior moment. Uh, the gal, she won the Academy Award for Black Swan. Uh, I, I, oh, Natalie Portman. Natalie Portman. Natalie yeah, Portman. yeah. Thank you. Um, and so uh, wow. they, they became like best friends, and they talked. Every, they talked every single day until the day he he passed away. Oh my goodness! Well, Mona's like, you know, Steve, you and I have the same dad. I've never met our dad. Could you hire this private investigator to find our dad? He's like, sure. So he comes back to Mona a week later, gives her a, a, a three by five card. He's like, there's this information. If you want to meet him, go ahead. But this guy's a jerk. And just tell, don't even tell him I exist. Mm. And so Mona says, sure. So she meets him uh, at a restaurant in Sacramento. He, this, he's running this small restaurant in Sacramento. It's kind of a tense meeting. But after about five hours, they start to loosen up and, and like one another. And he's like, oh, Mona, I'm so sorry about everything. I'm sorry that you have to see me like this. You know, I used to run big restaurants. I used to run the biggest restaurant in Silicon Valley. Mona, you won't believe this. One time. Steve Jobs came into my restaurant <laughs> and she's looking directly at him and she can't tell him that's your son. I mean, I get goosebumps every time I tell that story. Yep, I felt that. You know, and that's what I get excited about in reading is finding, you know, I was just reading a book the other day, which the book was horrible, but there was one two page story I, I, and it was about an entrepreneur who was trying to find the next big thing and he was in Chile and he was watching these fishermen bring back their, their catch. And they were emptying their nets. And then the, the excess fish, the fish that they, they weren't supposed to sell, he noticed that they always ate that fish. And so he, he, he ate the fish with them. And he's like, wait a sec, this fish tastes better than the fish that you're catching. And they're like, yeah, but nobody wants this fish. And uh, it was called the toothfish. It's just this nasty looking fish. And so this guy, he was a marketing entrepreneur. And so he changed the name, and now it's like one of the, the biggest selling fish in America. He changed the name from Toothfish to the Chilean sea bass. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> what a great I feel story. terrible for the bass because they were being left alone before. Oh, I, <laughs> I mean, I just, I love it. So this is how, you know, I, and when I'm talking to a student or if I'm talking to a parent, I, I'm trying to find out what they're interested in. You know, yeah. uh, you grew up in a, in a literate home, Domini, where you had, people around you that loved reading. And so you loved reading. I used to run a nonprofit called Real Dads Read. And I used to challenge the dads. I'm like, hey, dad, you want to know why your kids like football so much? It's because that's the only time you spend with them. I mean, uh, a, a great person, I think it was Emily Buckwald said that uh, children are made readers on the laps of their parents. Yeah. And uh, children so, are made anything in the laps of their parents. I agree. I agree. They're watching everything. And if, there was a, me, there was, if I have three kids of my own, when somebody cuts you off on the freeway and you say a word you shouldn't say, 
listen to the back seat because they'll start announcing that word. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you got to watch that. Yes. <laughs> Traffic's a great time to practice being present. Um, there was a, um, a a moment that made me think of that about the, about kids sort of showing what you what you uh, what what you do, what the parents do. I was in. I don't know, some apartment complexes when I first moved to Asheville about five or six years ago. And um, there was the, there were these sort of a, you know, not super high end place. And, and underneath me, there were these guys that just like sort of sat around, drank beer and, um, you know, and, and their kids were running around, they're chain smoking and, you know, but everybody's fine, you know, they're doing their thing, whatever. And I was coming home one day and this, and this little kid was, was by the walkway and he was doing, he was playing in the dirt, something. And I was like, I kneeled down. I was like, hey, you know, how, how are you? What, what, what you doing? And he's like, oh, I'm making, I'm making a, a, a pie. And I was like, oh, you guys make a pie out of dirt. And I was like, that's cool. You know, what kind of pie? He's like, oh, it's a beer pie. <laughs> and I was like, and I was just like, of course it is, because that's what you're learning to like. Is like you dad, dad sits there drinking PBR. And I was like, the kid is just sitting there and and emulating it. And I know it's like a weird example, but like it's kind of beautiful. It's like, yeah, that's what dad that that's what cool people do. Exactly. And it's like, yeah, that's there was exactly a, right. When Nancy Reagan had her her just say no to drugs campaign, they had this ad where it's this dad confronting his son because he found drugs in his room. He's like, where, where did you learn how to do this? Where'd you learn how to do this? And finally the teenage son's had enough. He's like, you dad, I learned it from you. And the dad like, back <laughs> it was actually a pretty powerful commercial. Interesting. Interesting. Yeah, I know that's boy that that sort of set off a whole um, <laughs> series of events that uh, that has 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 impacted our our present, hasn't it? Well, um, yeah, again, you know, my pastor has a great saying. He says, uh, "Parents, you have the greatest home field advantage in the history of the planet. You could be the <laughs> worst parent ever, but your kids don't know it." And so, this is why I always focus on parents. I'm like, you know, you don't have to be a PhD to be a really good parent. It was either Socrates or Keanu Reeves who once said, "He loses to fish." a license to drive a car, but any idiot can become a parent. Well, now that I'm a parent, that's been proven true. But in defense mm-hmm. of parents, nobody gives them a manual at the hospital. I think one of my yeah. jobs as an educator is to provide parents with some some practical tips that they can do with their kids every single day. And I've literally taught parents that didn't know how to read. I've taught them how to act like, fake it until they make it with their kids and their kids actually learned how to read, even though the parent didn't know how to read. Oh, wow. Interesting. Yeah. So, so that that might be something that people may connect with, um, on here, uh, for the parents out there, if you had one, um, one trick or one, um, you know, bit of advice to, to share with them, what would that be? That's a great question, Dominique. Thank you for asking it. Um, Mm. so, I'll do a lot of trainings. My passion is working in under-resourced areas. And so I'll, I'll be doing a parent night. You know, a lot of parents will, will claim to me, oh, I have nothing to read at home. I'm like, oh, mm. I bet you do. President you do. Bush Sr. over 30 years ago signed a very important law in the United States. It says every television set made in America has to be, has to have closed captioning on it. And so I always tell people, turn on the closed captioning. And then they'll always say, well, wait a sec. If the show's in English and the subtitles are in English, what good does that do? I'm like, well, that's a fair point. Let me make a point. Have you ever watched a show with subtitles and not looked at the subtitles? It's very difficult to do. Your brain is directed always towards read them. that text. Yeah. And there's actually research to support this. So if you look at literacy scores around the world, the more kids watch TV, what do you think happens to their reading scores? Do they go up or they go down? They always go down. down. In every country yep. except for one. The country that watches the most TV has the highest reading scores in the world. It's Finland. Now, 
How Finland, can I- why does Finland win every competition? Those people are so good at being people. It's extraordinary. They're the best drivers. They made cell phones that were great for a long time. I'm telling you, those people have it. Well, the reason they're the best readers is because they make really bad TV shows. And so what they have to do is they have to import old sitcoms from America, like Happy Days and uh, Gilligan's Island, and they have to subtitle them in Finnish. The kids are reading constantly. And so that's the quick tip for the parents in the audience out there is, you know, turn on the turn on the subtitles. Now, I know yes. like a lot of the a lot of your audience is guys that are dating. And I mean, one of the things I used to do, I have the one of the top um uh, online book clubs called lazyreaders.com. Uh, it's a free subscription. Uh, once a month for the rest of your life, I update it with 10 book recommendations, three or four adult oh. level, three or four young adult level, and three or four children's books, all written under 250 pages. So you have something you can read while you're stuck in a meeting. And, oh. you know, w- my fraternity brothers were always asking me for, for ways to look intelligent. And I'm like, well, you don't have to read all of, you know, so you I kind of want to break all, that down, but we'll we'll save that for later. Sorry, carry on. It's the thing you don't have to read all of War and Peace. Just read this chapter, and you're going to get it. Uh, you don't have to read all of. I mean, Shakespeare. You, I love Shakespeare. You don't have to read everything from Shakespeare to to sound intelligent. I mean, all you have to yeah. do just you and I earlier talking about the line and the fairy from Midsummer Night's Dream. I mean. It makes us sound intelligent, even if that's all we know about the play. I mean, I always tell that to guys. I mean, you don't have to read the whole book. I'll show you what part of the book to read. And, uh, you know, uh, I, I was one of those kids that grew up on Cliff Notes. I love Cliff Notes. And I also, um, the person that really changed my life was, uh, um, there's a great children, a young adult author by the name of Will Hobbs. He writes books that are very popular with teenage boys about outdoor adventures. Uh, and... When I was in seventh grade, he was my seventh grade reading teacher in Durango, Colorado. Will was the first person to get me interested in reading. He had 5,000 books in his classroom. And every day at the beginning of class, he would tell us what he was reading. We would would tell him what we were reading. And the rest of the 50-minute period, we read. Mm. Whenever we finished a book, we'd take it up to Mr. Hobbs. He'd put down the book he was reading go through our book, ask us three or four questions. If he was satisfied with our answers, he gave us a point. Every book up to 200 pages is worth one point. Every extra 100 pages is worth another point. You needed 25 points to get an A in his class, and the top five point totals had their names written on the board. And I wanted my name written on that board. Where is that now? Why don't we have that? That's so great. It is is great. And... It's the same thing I'm training parents. This isn't rocket science. There's basic things. People try to overcomplicate it. Yeah, I mean, even my reading engagement program, when I introduce it at schools, so many parents and teachers are like, well, that's simple. You know, I can do that myself. I'm like, go ahead. You should. Yeah. You're not going to, though. Nobody's holding you accountable. I hold you accountable. I like I can track if you're actually doing it. I mean, yeah, you're saying you're going to do something. Whether I was teaching my I've taught all age levels. I started off as a secondary high school teacher, then went middle school, upper elementary, lower elementary to pretty soon. Instead of preparing students for college, I was coming home with snot marks all over my pants from the little ones hugging me all day. And whether whether it's my little ones or my older ones, as as they exit my classroom every day, they always have to hear me say the same thing. I always say, kids, remember, education is valuable, but execution is priceless. Knowledge is not power. Only applied knowledge is power. 
knowing what the yes. right thing to do and doing the right thing are two very different things. So go out in the world, do the right thing and make the world a better place. Every, every kid has to hear that from me every day. You know, when I, when I bump into students 20 years later, they're like, education is valuable. Good. I always tell this to teachers. If, if teachers really want to freak out, it was a game on the last day of school. We always had a contest in my class to see which kid could impersonate me the best. It's very <laughs> humbling to see what the kids pick up. <laughs> Inviting roasting. Yes. Yeah, that's, that, that's that's brave on your part. Yes. So, uh, you know, with the homeschooling thing, I, I didn't know what Cliff's Notes were until I was probably in my 20s. Yeah. And I think the first time I read them may have been A Tale of Two Cities. Mm. Um which uh, in my life was, you know, the best of times and the worst of times. Mm-hmm. And um, I, I remember it because, and I appreciated the going over it because there was also something a little bit lost because I wasn't sitting in a classroom dissecting it. Um, the, you know, the things that I read, I would just get my own impression and I would move on to the next thing. Yeah. But I remember because, you know, they have this, and if you guys haven't, had, guys haven't read The Tale of Two Cities, um, it, it's essentially got like some sort of, you know, conflicted, um, what I sort of seeing is like negative characters. Um, and then like these two, this like beautiful couple that is just like this really sweet, you know, this woman's just like super sweet and, and beautiful and lovely. And I was very, I was very young. And to me, I, I liked her the best, right? <laughs> and I was just like, oh yeah, like, cause she's, she's pretty. And she like, that's what I wanted to be. And, and I was like, oh, she's, she's pretty and she's sweet. And it, they just, it, 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 but it's, it's saccharine in, 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 in nature, right? The description mm-hmm. of her is quite saccharine. And so, um, I remember reading the Cliff's Notes and the Cliff's Notes just flat, just tore it up. They were just like, <sighs> yeah, like these two characters are some of the most uninteresting and useless characters, you know, in, literar- in, in literature. And they're supposed to be that way, right? And, and they're, they're vapid and uninteresting because all she is is sweet. There's no, there's no character. And then this other guy who was like kind of like negative and rare, but he was torn up like there was a story about him. And that seems very obvious to me now. But at the time, it was, it was a, a bit of a shift for me because I, I kind of liked the sweet, pretty, I thought that was the mm-hmm. best, quote unquote. And just reading that, you know, in two sentences, they were like, you know, obviously this character is, you know, utterly uninteresting and uninspiring. And this other character is like, you know, is overcoming things. And I think he was maybe in love with her and I can't remember, you know, gave up his love for something. I mean, it was like, but it was like a dramatic, you know, was, um, of, of a real literary intrigue. And, uh, and I remember that shift, and I and I, I learned in that from the Cliff Notes. I really learned, like I, I read them obviously after I'd read the book. Um, but I, I, I thought, oh, oh, that's that that is more interesting. I, I can see now the 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 one layerness of that, but I didn't I didn't see that before. So that, even that was a lot of growth. You also learned another point, which was a point of view, and what makes their point of view any more valid than your point of view. I mean, and so that's so interesting, isn't it? Yeah, it's uh, like yeah, you take you take a piece. And- I started off as a history teacher, and the first thing I always teach people when I teach history is history books are usually written by the winners. You know, every written history has multiple points of view, and in the, I always told my students in our class we're going to learn how to think, not what to think. I mean, you don't have to agree with me. I don't, but we're going to learn how to be respectful for one another. I mean, we'd be much better off in this country if people learn how to be able to disagree with one another respectfully than to be disagreeable towards one another. There's a major difference there. I mean, you and I don't have to see eye to eye on everything, but we can love and respect one another. I, I, I really wish that, and I've kind of given up on adults. That's why I focus on the kids. Is, you know, how can we, I don't entirely blame you. Well, it's important. I, I, I see, you know, the best thing I did in COVID was I turned off the news. Uh, mm, it wasn't mm-hmm. serving me. All the, yeah. it, I, I realized, I'm like, oh, I'm always angry after I watch the news. Yep. And so why am I watching the news? I don't need to. 
am I going to be able to affect these events? And I, yeah, I, you know, and then I, I love to just be a contrarian with the, you know, because people can gripe about whatever politician. And I always point this out to people. I'm like, well, that person did something you and I didn't do. They're like, what? I'm like, they ran for office. Yes. You know, <laughs> Teddy Roosevelt said the credit belongs to the person that's in the arena. And yeah. I completely agree with that. So, I mean, anybody yeah. can criticize. Anybody can gripe about the problems. What what the world needs are people that solve the problems and step up and do something. Absolutely. You know, I mean, yeah. how many people talk about having a podcast and never do it? You you have a yeah. podcast, Dominique. <laughs> no matter what, you do this. That you've done something. Most people never do anything. They talk. They quack all the time. <laughs> Oh yeah, I can see your gift and motivation. This is like the third time I feel so great about myself talking. I'm like, yeah, you know what? I did do that. And you know what's interesting is I, I was quite frightened when I first did it too. Like when I first started out, I'd, I'd actually had a friend. Usually, you know, uh, courage is usually one of my core qualities. I'll just sort of, you know, do things um, that other that would scare the shit out of other people. Um, but I, but with this one, I really had a hard time. And I had a friend be like get up and do it. Mm. And usually I needed that. And she's not even a friend that I'm particularly close with. We speak every like two years. And every time we speak, I'm just like, by the way, thank you for kicking me in the ass and telling me to go and do that thing, which I very obviously needed to do. Um, but, uh, but what wasn't quite there. So, um, that's, and a, that's, a, that's, and a, that's you get every single time, Dominique. I mean, that's the th- it's the repetition. That's what I, the whole basis of my program is the reps. I say, you know, the way you're going to become a better reader is by reading more. And I'm like the, yeah. the research is really clear on this. It doesn't matter if you're reading James Joyce or James and the Giant Peach. People who read more read mm-hmm. better. I mean, I tell parents, the little boy who only reads Captain Underpants is going to be a better reader than the little boy who refuses to read anything. I mean, Captain Underpants uh-huh. is the gateway drug to Shakespeare. You know, <laughs> you, you got to get him hooked. That might have to be the quote. I'm just going to have to write that down here. <laughs> Captain Underpants. <laughs> is the gateway drug to Shakespeare. Is the gateway drug to Shakespeare. Yep. That's 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 it right there. I love it. <laughs> that's super good. Uh, James and the Giant Peace. Was that uh, Roald Dahl? Oh, yeah. Roald Dahl is <sighs> one of my favorites. <laughs> I, he's, he's really quite... Uh, Witches, I read. Um, Matilda, that's my favorite. Matilda, I read. Wasn't there one? Uh, Twits? The Chocolate it, Factory. I'm actually not sure I ever read that. I remember seeing the old movie, though, with... Um, oh, the Willy Wonka? Mm-hmm. Yeah, you should have... You, the Matilda movie, the one with Danny DeVito and Rhea Perlman, is fantastic I never saw that. in the book. Is it good? Yeah, it's it's great. But the, the, again, the book is... The, the Matilda just cracks me up at the beginning, because as a teacher, he's like, oh, I would love to be a teacher to tell parents how uh, stupid their children are. Mm-hmm. <laughs> He, mm-hmm. he was probably I just I would have loved to have met Roald Dahl. I have a feeling Me too. Like a I wonder what he's like. Yeah, he's just a grandpa that says whatever's on his mind. <laughs> yeah. God bless people like that. <laughs> were you um were you a Bill Pete fan? Oh yeah. Well Bill Pete, he's just uh you know, uh he worked for Walt Disney and wanted to become a children's book author and illustrator and disney when he was leaving said this is the biggest mistake you'll ever make in your life bill well it wasn't <laughs> what was he what was he doing with disney he was an animator oh interesting yeah yeah so huh. uh, here's one that a lot of people don't know uh tim burton the famous director who directed charlie and the chocolate factory edward scissorhands big fish all uh, sorts of things yeah all kinds of things he he was employed as an illustrator by the Disney company for three months before they fired him. 
And because this, being terrifying. Yeah, well, they found his his drawings were very macabre and they weren't Disney like. Yeah. So he has a great book. I'm trying to remember that. I think the title is The Melancholy Death of Oyster Boy and Other Stories. And it has a collection of those illustrations. And he wrote poems to go with the illustrations. And so there's one that I loved. I used to read with the kids. Uh, it, it goes, uh, stick boy like match girl. He liked her a lot. He liked her cute figure. He thought she was hot, but could, but could a flame, but could a flame ever be lit between a match and a stick? It did quite literally, and he burned up quick. I think that's how it goes. It's just fantastic. I love it. So it's a tragedy and a comedy yeah, and a romance. You've got a sick, twisted, demented sense of humor. <laughs> I'm surprised Disney didn't know that when they hired him. That's, yeah, uh, that's, exactly. that's pretty interesting. Yeah, Bill Pete was one of my favorites. And um, uh, there, was, there was a book, I think, called... Uh, I can't remember. It was something like The, the Lucky One or The Luckiest One. Mm. And... It was about, you know, it starts off with this, this boy who's, who's like bored, you know, by the, by a, by a pond and he's like, and he sees a bird and he's like, man, I wish I were a bird. Like birds are the lucky ones, you know, if only I could be like that. And then it, it shifts perspectives. I love this so much. It shifts perspectives to the bird then. And it shows the bird, you know, flying and free. And then the next page and the bird says something, I don't know. And the next page is the bird soaking wet on a branch. Um, right. And just being like, oh, but like sometimes a bird is being like, yeah, there's all this freedom and I get to fly and that's pretty cool. But also like, you know, it rains and then I'm cold and nasty, and whatever. Mm -hmm. And what I, what the really lucky one is the frogs because they're in the, in the, in the pond and then it shifts to the frog and then it shifts to the, da -da -da, and it goes to like a building and a light post. And all these people are needing are speaking from these perspectives. And eventually it comes to some creature. I can't remember the last one. Maybe it was a building who like couldn't move anywhere. Um, and was like the real lucky one is the boy who can do whatever he wants and can run wherever he likes. And does, and it's just like this, this whole circle of just being like, oh, you know, perspective it. of self actually yeah. now it's not making a lot more sense why I like this story. No, but... better than yours. Yeah. I mean, yes. you, we don't, too many people fail to appreciate, and this is something I grapple with. I, I'm always trying to, this is actually something I'm working on this year is really gratitude for all the blessings. Yeah. I mean, uh, you know, uh, I was working with a group yesterday and one of the women was kind of whining about how tough her life was. And she's like, what can I do? And I said, you know, what you should do is volunteer at the Children's Cancer Hospital. Because I think it would give you some perspective about, you know. Hey, look, problem. shit's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I mean, I speak a lot in India and I love it when people talk about American poverty. I'm like, you have no idea the poverty yeah. that is in yeah. some of these third world countries. I mean, I'm not, I don't know if India is technically a third world country because it's pretty amazing. Uh, it's one, it's one of the, it's one of the bricks. The developing, I think is, is the. It's interesting. I, I spoke, I, I spoke at a school of 5,000 girls, Dominique, and these two girls, I, I pump them all up. And these two beautiful girls come up afterwards. One wants to be a doctor, one wants to be a lawyer. So that's great. Are you going to go to university here in India? Or maybe you'll go to Great Britain or the United States? And they said, oh, we're girls. We can't leave India. I'm like, get back in that auditorium. Got them all packed <laughs> yes. in there. All right. You guys don't pass this talk. We need to, we need to, we need to keep talking. Yeah. I, I said, hey, now is your moment, ladies. I mean, India within the next five years is going to become the largest country on the planet in terms of population. I'm like, you're a very young democracy, just a little bit over 70 years old, yet you've already elected a woman prime minister. America mm -hmm. still has not elected a woman president. Like right now, there are twice as many women in India as there are people in the United States. There are actually more women in India with a graduate degree than there are people 
in the United oh, States. Man. And That's I started I'm like, you just made it my entire mission in life that every one of you, the moment you start doubting yourself, you just call me up, I'll pump you up because, you know, you might be the one. I mean, that's really- You guys are going to lead, you're going to lead the next wave. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. It's kind of crazy, but that's, it just gives you perspective. I mean, yeah. people need much- better person. That's one of the biggest problems in America right now is people just don't listen to one another. They, oh, they define each other. They judge each other, but they don't listen to one another. Uh, I, I, George Washington said the death of the country would be political parties. I agree with him. I, I think people need to stop identifying as uh, red or blue and, and start identifying all of us as the red, white, and blue. We're all part of this together. Um, and I, for one, am an optimist and think the United States is the greatest social experiment ever. And uh, I love the fact that all of us are different. I, I think no. that's what I think that's it's our diversity is our strength. You know, yeah. the Olympics are going to be in a couple of weeks. And I always tell people, I love the opening ceremonies of the Olympics. You see the different teams come in the stadium, you know, and Japan comes in, they're all, they all look Japanese. And then Norway yeah. comes in or Finland, they're all blonde hair, blue eyes. Yep. You got America, a bunch of mutts, you know, uh, <laughs> you can give me the biggest redneck going, USA, we're number one. We just won the gold medal, Christy Yamaguchi. <laughs> you know, this is what, you know, this is what, when people are talking about national education, I'm like, you know, I think North Carolina is great. It doesn't have to look like California. I mean, yeah. is somebody in Washington, D.C. going to figure out that the strength of our country is our diversity? You know, yeah. we need and to play to that. Yeah, I mean, a perfect yeah. example is COVID. If we were all the same, we would have been wiped out as a human species. But we are not, we're different, and that's what kept yeah. us going. Yeah. Mm, that's fascinating. Um, I'm curious if you have... Uh, if you have a book... Have you read something that's kind of a classic that... Um, you you were kind of either surprisingly disappointed in or or couldn't finish or like something that kind of caught you off guard. Almost every classic I ever read, I was disappointed. <laughs> I, was forced, I remember when uh, I was in high school, I was forced to read The Scarlet Letter by Nathaniel Hawthorne, which mm-hmm. is the story of Hester Prynne commits adultery, so she's forced to wear an A on her chest. And I asked my teacher if I could read wear a B on my chest because I was so bored reading that book. <laughs> now that's there's nothing wrong with the Scarlet Letter. Some people love that book. That's great. That's what this is what it's all about is to have these discussions. As a matter of fact, I I often will not like something, but listening to another person give me their point of view, I'll reread it just to see if I missed something. It's kind of like what you're mm-hmm. talking about with those cliff notes there. Um, yeah, I, I'd say almost all the classics I ever read. I, whenever I was forced to read something, changes it, doesn't it? It does, and it's yeah. it's so everything is psychology with teaching. I mean, one of the things I used to do everything psychology with life. Yeah, I mean, I I would do that with kids all the time. Uh, I I start to read a book like if I'm teaching first grade, I'm like, okay, today we're gonna oh see here on the back of the book it says this is a grade three book. This is too difficult for us. I'll put it over here if anybody wants to check it out later. Guess which book they're all going to check out. Ooh, I'll show him. I'm smart enough. You know, if you want a kid to do something, tell him not to do it. That's how you do yeah. it. That's always yeah. the way you do it. And uh, it, it's not rocket science. It's just kind of paying attention to human behavior. And I love it. I, I, I miss being with the kids all the time. But now I get to affect a lot more kids, um, you know, because my program is a lot of videos and stuff. And it was, it, I, I have this one kid, it's amazing, Michael. He's my poster boy. Michael was a 
third grade boy, hated reading. He was at the bottom of his class. His mother was fed up. So she enrolled him in my reading engagement program, which is designed to last uh, just over two months. And after a month, but Michael's teacher calls his mother and says, is Michael on Ritalin? His mother's like, no. She's like, well, what drugs did you put him on? I don't have him on medication. She's like, what is going on? Michael has gone from my worst student to my best student. You know, so, well, that's cool. But there's two things that made me love Michael. First of all, he got so into reading. He started his own book club, got all of his buddies reading. And yes. This, this teacher's winning all these awards from her district because her kids are the best. It cracks me up. He had nothing to do with it. Um, but what really endeared me to Michael was his mother doesn't speak a word of English. Our mm. videos are meant for the parents to watch, to show the parents things that they can do with their kids. Michael watched the videos himself because his mom didn't understand yeah. a word. So it means I'm, I'm entertaining enough to the kids. But because of that, Domini, we actually translated the entire program into Spanish. So uh, nice. Spanish-speaking parents have access. And now that, you know, we, we have a lot of uh, schools that we represent in uh, Egypt. So I think we're going to do an Arabic version. And then a lot in, uh, in Southern India, uh, Tamil will be the other, uh, I, I mean, I want to make sure everybody has access to it. I mean, yes. this is the thing I always tell people, the better you are in your first language, the more that's going to translate into your second language. And all these people, it, it always cracks me up these debates. I'm like, you just don't know anything. Like, it's crazy. I hear about people, oh, you, these kids, they don't want to learn English. I'm like, come on, folks. I think we can all agree. Let's uh, like let's set some baseline here. To succeed in America, it's a good idea to learn English. Can we all agree on that? Yeah. Learning English doesn't have to come at the expense of a native language. You know, yeah. it, it, it helps if you have a native language. I mean, my wife is from Singapore. My mother-in-law only speaks Mandarin. So, I mean, I, it, it's great if my kids know some Mandarin. You know, I, I, I want all kids to be able to pick out some kind of different language. For some reason in this country, people fear other languages. I'm like, why? I mean, English is, yeah. in, English is a necessity. I mean, we need English. I don't think anybody can dispute that, but it doesn't have to come at the expense of your home language. So just a little tip out there for people to freak out about those things. You know, I, I've dealt with so many Spanish-speaking parents, and people think that they want their kids in Spanish. I'm like, I've had exactly the opposite. Uh, from my parents, I have to convince them to speak Spanish at home because they're just pressing for the kids to be in English because yeah. the immigrant parents want their kids to have a better life. That's why they yeah. care. So there's this big misconception out there. I mean, um, and I, I, I would love people to understand that that's just not the case. I mean, but when I'm working with a Spanish speaking parent, I say, you need to tell stories in Spanish. You know, they're going to get English in school, I promise. But yeah. I really don't want... And TV to, and culture right. and just around. I mean, because, well, you just hit it right there. Language and culture are so significantly tied together. I mean, yeah. when you insult a person's language, I mean, it doesn't take a lot to to impress a person. You know, it, it always has annoyed me that world leaders will come to the United States and speak English, and yet I've never seen an American president go to a foreign country and attempt to speak their language Mm, if you screw it up, of course people are going to laugh. Oh, we screwed it up. But there's no greater sign of respect than trying to s communicate with a person in their language. And I, I, Rather than assuming they'll speak yours. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, before I forget, I, I wanted to add something that the story that you told, um, which I'm so glad that you shared of the two um, little Indian girls. Um, <laughs> and you were like, you, you call me. I, I actually had the same thought. If you would like to connect them with me, uh, I would be happy to look out for them. Um, that that type of 
you know, motivation and all they're like legitimately lacking is, is resources that, that speaks to me quite, um, quite strongly. So, uh, feel free to pass them along to me as well, if they find it useful, because I'd be happy to help. Know this, Domini. I mean, just you having this podcast, you're a role model to a lot of little girls out there. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, Think about all those little girls. They're like, I could never do a podcast, but now they listen to you. They're like, Oh, Mm-hmm. maybe I can do it. You know, it, mm-hmm. it was interesting. I, I, I trained speakers. So I was training uh, a group of speakers yesterday and I, I was emphasizing this. I'm like, it was, we need more female speakers. We need more minority speakers. It was right before COVID where conference organizers were starting to figure out, well, maybe we shouldn't just have four white guys as our keynotes. Maybe we need some yeah, what? there. Yeah, <laughs> because you never know. Like, yeah. um, I mean, that's what, I, I remember this. I was telling them the story like 30 years ago. I was teaching fifth grade. I had a little boy who came up to me. He's like, hey, Miss Bissell, my mama says the reason they call it the White House is because you got to be white to live there. And now I could say, not anymore. Not anymore. You could be black or orange. That's all. <laughs> There's been a Reese's peanut butter cup in there the last, uh, <laughs> last decade. <laughs> I like that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's pretty good. Um, so, uh, do you remember reading Rainbow? Oh, yeah. LeVar Burton deserves the Presidential Medal of Freedom as far as I'm... I know. I would vote for him, for real, though. Absolutely. That man is, is super aware. Have you heard his podcast? Yeah. He's he's an incredible human being. He's somebody... He's an incredible really human admire. being. He's quite awake. Yeah. It's, it's, awesome. it's, it's great to hear, and he doesn't... It's really, like, unassuming... But he, he has his little, you know, he has, a, he has a podcast called LeVar Burton Reads. Highly recommend you guys look this mm-hmm. up. It's, it's, it's really great. Um, and he just, his little thing is, he goes, the only thing these stories have in common is that I love them. <laughs> and uh, I feel like that's just the, really wraps them up really well. But he um, will just give a little, you know, his sort of take on the story afterwards. And he's just, he's very uh, self-aware, mm. um, which I think is super cool. And uh, is there anything like Reading Rainbow that's out now? Well, there's other there ways. There's other ways to really encourage kids to read. I mean, uh, I I have podcasts that I refer the kids to that are like stories and things. I here's a so like the last book I wrote, Leadership Begins with Motivation. It's the same kind of. It's those little stories that I'm always looking for. So here's here, here's just a little clip from one um, I read to the kids. On the morning of January 17, 1977, Gary Gilmore in a plain T-shirt, strapped into a chair with a bag over his head awaited a firing squad of five law enforcement officers to execute him at the state prison in Draper, Utah. Convicted of murdering a gas station employee and motel manager in Utah the year before, Gilmore would be the first person in the United States to be executed in nearly a decade. Shortly before his execution, prison officials asked Gilmore if he had any last words. Neither he nor anyone else that day would know the impact of those words. Over 10 years later, in 1988, Dan Whedon, an advertising executive who co-founded the Whedon and Kennedy Agency in Portland, Oregon, made something of a morbid pitch to a struggling fashion company. He recalled the inmate's final words and used a slight variation for his pitch, and seemingly everyone hated his idea for the company's new slogan. Just trust me on this one, Whedon implored the company's co-founder, and the co-founder, his company, and the public had not looked back since. The co-founder's name was Phil Knight. The struggling brand he co-founded was a shoe company called Nike. And advertising executive Dan Whedon slightly altered death row inmate Gary's 
Gary Gilmore's final words, let's do it, into the phrase, just do it. The phrase has become Nike's signature slogan, helping to turn a niche brand into a global multi-billion dollar giant, and etching the phrase indelibly into consumers' minds around the globe. Leaders don't wait. They can't. They have too much to do. So these are the types of stories um, I like to, to get people excited about. Um, it really doesn't take that much. I mean, I, that's what I love about your podcast, Dominique, is people need inspiration. There's all kinds of negativity in the world all the time. My advice to anybody is just turn it out. You have that choice. I, I, so I have three kids. Two of them are teenagers. And I, I, I pointed this amazing thing on their computer the other day. It's a button that's not on the keyboard. It's right to the right of the keyboard. I'm like, you see that? You don't have to respond to everything that people post on social media. You don't. And they were amazed. <laughs> you know, they were shocked. Yeah, just keep, I, I, I keep the negativity away. You got to surround yourself with the positives. That'll that'll serve you. Um, you know, so you can serve others. Yeah, that letting go is really essential. You know, when I first uh, started this this business, I, I had um, uh, put Facebook ads out. And of course, people just write just the meanest shit on Facebook ads, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I was not, you know, I didn't have a, a level of resilience. And I, I was, you know, oh my gosh, you know, what do you, what do you mean? I'm ugly and stupid and I can't help you. It's like, these people like, well, you know, now I look back and I'm like, girl, like... <laughs> stop, like just, you know, stop. Um, but at the time, you know, it was, it was, it was painful and I really had to adjust. Um, and then I learned, you know, I learned to be like, you know, you're going to let that stop you. Really? You're not going to bring your work to the entire world that needs it because, you know, people who have no idea who I am, you know, are, you know, are, are, are writing, you know, nasty stuff on Facebook. Um, and so that resilience of like moving through, like I didn't totally turn off, um, uh, news through all of, of COVID, but my, I restricted myself completely to the BBC. Yeah. That is where I got my entire thing. I didn't touch anything else for a year and a half. Really? Um, I generally don't touch it a whole lot anyway, um, because I find that's that's what will get me. You know, I, I needed to know, you know, I was watching the death count, right? I mean, like it was it was an, it was an intense time. Um, and uh, but I didn't I didn't want all that fan, all the fanfare. I don't want your opinion on the death count. I want to know what you know what I mean. I want to know what is happening. And and for me, that's that's yeah. the news. You know that that really just kind of tells it like it is. Well, and the book I'm writing right now, you'll appreciate this. So it, this was interesting, Dominique. Without intentionally doing it, after I wrote this leadership book, I realized that so many of my examples were white men and Americans. I was like, whoa. Mm. And I I didn't intend that. To, uh, this was my own personal after I read it. I'm like, wait a second, I'm, I'm noticing a pattern. And so the book I'm writing right now focuses much more on minorities, women, and international stories. Mm. I, had, I, I wrote this one story about these two women, uh, Martha and Agnes. They were having coffee at a coffee shop in New York City, and they were both choreographers. And Agnes had just uh, had just opened up her new her third play on Broadway. And while fans seemed to like it, the critics just said nasty things about her and and she was to the point she was just going to take the the show off broadway and and yeah. close it and her friend martha said no you can't do that agnes because it's not for you or me or anybody else to judge you know your your duty is to put it out into the world you yeah. know because there's only going to be one you there's only yeah. ever going to be you and if you close this play nobody will have that for the rest of history. And so Martha, the friend giving the pep talk, was Martha Graham, who's the mother of modern dance, who won the Presidential Medal of Freedom and the Kennedy's <laughs> Honors. Agnes, her friend, is Agnes DeMille, who was also a choreographer who won the Presidential Medal of Freedom and Kennedy Center Honors. She became the first woman to have three 
Broadway hits on Broadway at the same time. Oh wow! Like she's she's known as the as the the godmother of the modern day musical, and she decided she'd keep the play on Broadway, and she just changed the name of it to Oklahoma. Oh my goodness! You know. And I wrote another one about this Italian guy and he's bitching to his friend. He's like, Giuseppe, my back is hurting me. You know, I've been sniffing in fumes. I'm so miserable. I, every part of my body, hey, it just hurts. You know, alas, Giuseppe, I am not a painter. I am a sculptor. Mm. And it's signed Michelangelo right after he had painted the Sistine Chapel. <laughs> To be fair, that's probably going to put your back out yeah. like that. That actually, years, <laughs> pretty, years in the system. Pretty, wow. Oh, I got goosebumps on that one. That's beautiful. Yeah. And I love that. And I don't know exactly the dates. Perhaps you, uh, you can enlighten me, but one of my, probably my favorite piece of art, um, of a- anywhere that I've ever seen has been Michelangelo's, um, Moses. Oh wow! Uh, and I don't know if that was before or after the Sistine Chapel, but I wonder if if maybe he shifted. I wouldn't know, but I'll I'll research yeah. it. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. curious. That's that's just one of the most. I've actually never even seen it in person. Um, but it's it's uh, I don't know, it's just something extraordinary about it. Well, if you can make a rock flow, I think it's pretty damn go, impressive. Go see it in person. I mean, I remember, uh, you know. I backpacked with my buddy Dave Billick throughout Europe, and uh, I was too cheap. I didn't have that much money, and so I didn't go to Fusi. Yeah. Easy art gallery in Florence, and he paid the five or six bucks so that he could see the statue of David in person. And have you seen it now? No, I, it's, it's, it's don't un- regrets. You, you only have one. Unreal, <laughs> unreal. It is. It's that one I've seen twice. I, I've never. I think that Moses might be in Rome, and weirdly, I've never been to Rome. I've literally lived in Italy wow. um, for periods of time. I've traveled there countless times, and I've never, never been to Rome. But Florence is, and, and yeah. the David is, is, I mean, you could sit there and just like stare at it. It's just like. All of Italy is like that when you're, I mean, I, one of my dreams is to go to Israel. Cause like when I, I never understood Rome until I went to Rome. And one night I'm walking and the Colosseum was about a half a mile in front of me. And Dominique to my left was modern Rome. And to my right was ancient Rome. And I was blown oh. away. I was like, Ooh. I mean, I can't even imagine going around like Jerusalem and Bethlehem, you know, like. I mean, just, be incredible. It, I mean, I, just walking in those places, it, it, it's amazing. I mean, when I lived in Washington, D.C., one of my favorite places to hang out was in front of the National Science Foundation because it's, people don't know this, it's this beautiful statue. It's right off of Constitution Avenue across the street from the Vietnam Memorial and the Lincoln Memorial. And it's the yeah. statue of Einstein and he's just sitting there writing and thinking and and on the ground, if people pay attention, it's actually the constellations. And so my roommate and I used oh, to go there yeah. and we'd have these philosophical discussions to, you know, maybe we should have drank tea to look really uh, uh, nerdy. But uh, I, I, I cherished that. It was just wonderful. I think it should be absinthe and you're supposed to be uh, dressed like a bohemian. I think that's, that's yeah, how it's really that, supposed to be. A, you need a beret. You need go. a beret. That sounds yeah. good. It's less American, but you're there celebrating an Austrian anyway. So I love it. Austrian, right? Not German. Austrian. Yeah, Austrian. Einstein. He was a Swiss patent clerk. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Go figure. We all need a role in the world, right? I know, huh? Well, um, man, I have I've been, like writing down notes of like things to talk to you about. So you train speakers. Um, I know we're coming close up on our time. Um, well, before uh, before I leave, I, I want to give a gift to everybody in your audience and to you. Please, talk. yes, tell me how people can reach you and if what you what you. Everybody goes to freereadingtraining.com. Again, free 
readingtraining.com. I'm going to give everybody a complimentary e-copy of my book, Read, Lead, and Succeed, which is a book. I wrote it for a school principal who didn't know how to engage his faculty. So I said, okay, I'll write you a book. So every week I give you a concept, an inspirational quote, an inspirational story, a book recommendation on a book you should read, but you're probably too lazy because you're an adult. So I also give you a children's picture book recommendation that demonstrates the exact same concept. You can read that in five minutes. And then um, uh, I'll give you access to, I don't know, I think we have access to a couple of my digital trainings. If not, in um, I'm, I'm running a reading challenge here pretty soon, a five-day reading challenge for parents, uh, specifically of boys, uh, how to get their boys excited about reading. And the reason I made it for boys is because four out of five struggling and reluctant readers are boys. And it's because mm. you had kind of hit upon it. Dominique, when you're talking about um, A Tale of Two Cities, how you related to this woman, I'm like, it's interesting because I noticed that is if you watch the boys and the girls, they're always drawn to the characters. So it's like girls are are stronger female characters, boys are stronger male characters. And that's why I thought J.K. Rowling with Harry Potter was a genius because she has two very strong characters, Harry, but the other one is Hermione. And Mm -hmm. that's why she's got kids all over the world. I mean, I, I just think she did such a huge service in getting kids interested in reading. Uh, you know, I've been, and I say that I say that people and people are like, rah, rah, Harry Potter. And I'm like, Harry Potter is some of the great literature. It's some of the great writing of my generation. Yeah, uh, really I don't is. know if there's a huge amount more out there, but that is, it is so well written. I'm a huge, I, I really uh, I'm a hope huge a fan of your books. listeners haven't read Harry Potter yet because they had the opportunity to read it for the first time. I, I, I'll never have that chance again. The first time I read the first book, I mean, we can talk about all the books because I, I don't, I don't love the later books as much as I love the first ones because they get. Oh, really? But the first book, I was giggling on almost every page, just turning to my wife, like, where does she think of these things? It was, and then, but where I, I agree with you on the literature was when Harry looks at the mirror and sees his parents. And that's when I, I stopped reading. I'm like, oh. This is going to live in history. This is literature. I mean, it was just so beautiful. Um, I, I, I I get teary-eyed thinking about it. It's just a wonderfully written yeah. book. And I, I mean, you talk about a woman whose personal story is phenomenal. I mean, she, I mean, she was stuck waiting for a train for four hours, and during those four hours, she envisioned an entire series of books about a little boy wizard. She wrote all those notes and she put them in a safe. And then, uh, you know, the welfare mom now is one of the richest uh, people in all Great Britain. <laughs> it's an amazing yeah. story. Yeah, I think she gave away a billion dollars like 10 years ago or something. She all. went into like I mean, this. Why, that's what I love about Andrew Carnegie. I read a great uh, biography on Andrew Carnegie. One of the things I learned is that's how you say his name. I always thought it was Carnegie when they say Carnegie. Oh no, Carnegie. When he passed away, they opened up his desk and there was a card with his two goals in life. His first goal was the first half of his life. He was going to accumulate the largest uh, amount of wealth in the world. And the second half of his life, he was going to give it all away, which Mm. uh, over 2000 library, public libraries in America are Andrew Carnegie donations. Uh, I mean, just, you know, Carnegie Mellon. In uh, the the university in Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh Carnegie yeah. Hall. I mean, it's amazing. Now, now I feel special because I say Carnegie. You, know, I, no, no, no. <laughs> you say it brilliantly. Carnegie. You sound great. <laughs> <laughs> that is amazing. I love that so much. Something about that must. Uh, I can feel a really strong resonance there. 
um, to to amass. Like I'm in this process of you know building my empire, and it's it's all about just like here's. But I, I will give my work away for free. Like here, you know, I might have a bunch of the videos I have in my program. They're like you can find them on YouTube. I'm just like here, use this technique. It works. Mm-hmm. You know, just the same way. There's something about that that I just think is is so awesome. Yeah, it's well. interesting that you say that about the, the Harry Potter too, because I actually, um, my preferences go the other direction. So I actually um, don't like the first two books mm. uh, very much at all because they're just, they're good, but just sort of kids books. Yeah. And then start starting book three, which I think is absolutely brilliant. You know, it starts getting dark and I like, you know, my yeah. books having, you know, the torturing students and I'm like, yeah, I'm so into it. <laughs> um, but I, I sort of like the, I like the darkness, but, but yeah, that, that quality all the way through. I mean, she's, you know, she's throwing things back from to, to book one in, in book seven yeah. in ways that I just couldn't possibly have, um, you know, in the character development. And, and it's just, um, it's, it's really quite extraordinary. Yeah. She outlined the books that she actually had a plan. Like she, she must have. Yeah. Yeah. I wondered, I think by I think three or four, I'm like, did she like know where she's going yeah. with this? And sure. She, she sure did. She sure did. No, it's great because some people don't have plans. I, 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 you know, I'm not going to mention the books or the, I, I, I've seen too many stories where I realize, oh, they didn't have a plan because it was yeah. going so well and then it just fell to pieces. <laughs> and then a little plateau and then yeah. maybe not so much anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's fair. Well, this is, I feel like I could talk to you for about another hour without, uh, without even stopping for breath. Thank you so much for joining me. Um, is there anything else that you'd like to share or anywhere else that um, people can can come find you. No, again, just uh, freereadingtraining.com so everybody can get a, a copy of the book. And uh, if, you, if you're interested in learning more about how to engage uh, your kids or yourself in the reading, you'll find all kinds of information there. Uh, but again, I, I, I really appreciate you having me on, Dominique. And, and more importantly, I really appreciate the service that you, you are providing mm-hmm. everybody. It's extraordinary. Thank you so much. I appreciate that feedback very much. Well, fantastic, uh, fantastic guest today. I told you guys that was going to be good. Um, I will go ahead and put that link in the show notes. So please uh, do sign up. Uh, free reading, free reading, freereadingtraining.com. Training, freereadingtraining.com. Thank you so much. Um, so thank you guys so much for joining me. Uh, this has been phenomenal. I got to geek out. Um, I did not get to bring out my favorite literary character of all time, which is Dr. Hannibal Lecter. I'm just gonna, like throw oh, that out there. I just think Thomas Harris. What a great author. Oh, oh Red, Red Dragon. <laughs> Both, Red Dragon. Well, the, mo- the movies are great, but man, the books are even better. <laughs> yeah, and the end of Hannibal, I think, is one of the biggest twists I've ever, oh. um, I, I, I've, I've read anywhere. Um, I couldn't believe it. I mean, I, I like, it took me like a while to like, I was like, no, did that really, no, did, she, did that happen? It's so good. So there's, there's so much richness out there, guys. I know it's, it's, and I, I, I feel this as well. I'm in my, I'm in my thirties. I'm, I'm in the world with you. There is so much pull in so many different directions. And if, you know, there's, if there's one thing that you take from these podcast episodes of mine, it's around, you know, human potential is just about limitless if you can direct all of your focus in one direction. Um, if you split your focus and you are diffuse, then your effect in the world uh, is also um, diffused. And so um, I know there's a lot of distraction out there. I know the addiction thing, you know, with online dating and with TV shows and with the internet, and it's it's designed that way. Uh, so it's it's certainly working uphill. Um, but there is so much richness and so much connection to self that can be found in just sitting down with a good book. Um, it can be whatever you want. It can be you know trashy novels or it can be you know great great classics. It doesn't really matter. It matters about your experience of it. 
So, um, you know, so shoot me a line. Tell me what you're reading. Reach out to me on Facebook. Um, visit me at uh, dominiedrew.com. Send me a note and tell me what you're reading uh, and what your experience is. I would love to hear from you. Um, and if you're interested in pursuing this work more, please don't hesitate to reach out in those same places and let me know. I'd be happy to get on a free call with you and talk about how I can help. Thank you so much for joining me. It has been a pleasure. I will talk to you soon. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Art of Attraction. This is Dominique Drew signing off and reminding you that if you love this podcast, please hit that subscribe button, rate us five stars, and most importantly, share this episode with someone you know needs to hear it. See you next time.